Hello, everyone. Thanks again for joining us at the 2023 Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. My name is Evan Lefkowitz. I'm a first-year MBA student at MIT Sloan. And it is my pleasure to introduce our panel, The Future of Sports and Entrepreneurship, a conversation with Jason Robbins and Wick Grosbeck. Our panelists today are Jason Robbins, co-founder, CEO, and chairman of the board at DraftKings, and Wick Grosbeck, lead owner for the Boston Celtics. Our panel will be moderated by Jessica Gelman, CEO of Kager. The panel will run for 45 minutes, and we will leave 10 minutes at the end for questions. Please submit your questions on Twitter using the hashtag entrepreneurship in sports. The moderator will then select the questions. With that, I'll turn it over to you, Jessica. Thank you, Wick, Jason. Wonderful to be on stage with you. Uh, I also say this is like a very Boston-centric uh, panel. Obviously, the Celtics are Boston Celtics and DraftKings here based and then of course you know I'm here in Boston too so um, you guys are two of my favorite people I love listening to you I love learning from you you're amazing entrepreneurs so today we're gonna we're gonna hit on like four main themes building and then extending uh, what you are doing big bets and analytics leadership and managing in crisis and uh, future of sports. Now, if we don't hit all of those, that's because you guys are like having too much fun, which I think we all want, and that's fine too. Um, so let's get started. Just uh, at the kind of starting point here is what I've noticed about both of you is that you each seem to have a sense of opportunities before others do. So you know, Jason, obviously starting with fantasy sports, and then the, some of the moves you made with gambling, and Wick with the, how you created the syndicate for the Celtics, which was unusual at that time. And then how the dog, the how you were so focused on uh, getting access to purchase the Celtics and then the sports investment fund. I guess the question is, how did you originally conceive of the opportunities? I'll start with you, Jason. Uh, what, what did you see? What was the calculus you made? And why did you decide to go for it? Um, so like the original idea? Yeah, the original uh, concept. I mean, I wish I had some like really amazing story where I like, you know, had some great insight, but it wasn't actually me. It was my co-founder, Matt. Um, we had been talking for a while about we'd like to start something together, and there were various points in time. I'd known him for years. And then similarly, I had conversations with Paul, who's my other co-founder. And one, Matt knew that I was really into fantasy sports. He knew I was into all sorts of games. Um, he and I were in fantasy leagues together. So he knew I had an interest in it. And one day he came to me and he basically described at a very high level the idea for daily fantasy sports. And I immediately was like, I'm not sure if this is just because I think I love this thing or if it's like a really good idea, but it just like, we had thrown around a hundred ideas before and this was like one that just like hit me like a ton of bricks. So it's just like, this is awesome. So I went home that night and I couldn't stop thinking about it. Um, and then the next day I came in and I'd already done a lot of research and you know looked and I found some competitors and other things and I was just like hooked right away. So um, I think he came up with it. I, it immediately resonated with me. I still don't know if that's because I'm just a fantasy sports geek and I loved it, or if it's actually um, because you know I had some broader recognition that it was a good idea. But I, mean, I was actually worried about that. I was like, do I think this is just a really good idea because I love it? Um, so that was actually a little bit of a mental hurdle for me to get over. I thought I was biased, but. And then along the way, I think just everything sort of like naturally evolved in a way where I think we just didn't have a lot of choices. I'd like to say like I was so forward thinking, but for example, when we went to sports betting, it was kind of that or bust. Um, 
You know, we had just gone through an attempted merger with FanDuel that got shot down by the FTC. Um, company like needed a direction, and this was really like the Supreme Court announced they were taking up the case. That was really the only thing. So I think um, it got a lot harder later when we actually had real choices and options and had to make some more difficult decisions. So just uh, just a follow-up question. You said I like this the mental hurdle and the bias. Was there anything that you kind of said, oh, I'm going to like take it one step for further to ensure that you weren't biased? Yeah, I mean, a lot of it was research um, and just like doing more, um, you know, what's the size of the fantasy sports market? How much revenue does it generate? So like getting convinced that it wasn't just me and my little bubble, that there was actually a real market out there. Um, I think that's what helped me get over the hump. Wick. Jess, can I say for the record, first of all, you both look Fabulous in plum. Thank you. We coordinated maroon, today. And I didn't get the memo. I think there's a good, but that's okay. But secondly, you could answer every one of these questions. You founded a leading analytics company. You knew he did. You I probably did. managed through crises. I don't know, but, uh, but that was one of the questions. But you really ought to be interviewed instead of interviewing. But uh, thank you for, well, for being let, I'm going to just pause right there. I think for those of you who don't know, we, the conference would not exist if you had not taken a shot on Daryl and brought him in and given him some of the opportunities on the team side uh, doing analytics for the Celtics. And he and I met when right. he was at the Celtics. So and I, I think, think we I was all like need the to think. first guest almost of the first Sloan or one of the very yeah, early pitches. were the in, keynote. In front of a, or something like that. And, and, and Daryl said, Wick, would you just please tell everybody how you really like to use analytics at the Celtics. And I go, I actually said, I'm sorry, I don't really. I'm one of those people who looks at the players and sort of makes it. But I'm glad you know how to do analytics, Daryl. So that I sort of started the whole entire conference off with a, like, I don't really use analytics. I, I've, I've changed over the 20 years. I mean, but I think that actually speaks to, to your leadership. And no, I do, because you empower people. But even like the way that you conceived of going about getting the Celtics. I mean, t tell that story because it's so, well, it is, uh, I'm very respectful of how Jason and his co-founders did it because they really thought it through. I, this was more intuitive and seat of the pants for me. It really was. Uh, that's no surprise to anybody that knows me. Um, in college, I had been an, a college athlete, not recruited. I was a walk-on, but we had success there, and it, it formed my whole life, basically. <laughs> that's what I learned in college, to the extent I learned anything, was being on that team, rowing team. And so I'm then fast forward. 20 years, I'm at my desk investing at a venture capital firm and feeling that that wasn't it at age 41. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I looked up at the wall and there was a picture of us with the oars and a trophy, or actually with shirts over our shoulders, because you take the shirt off the back of the person that you uh, vanquish if you happen to win. It's, it's an amazing thing. And um, if you're wired like I am, that's an amazing thing. You might think it's not amazing, but <laughs> competitors think it's amazing. And uh, and I'm like, I want to do that again. I want to go win a championship. And the only way to do that is, was for me that I could think of was to buy a Boston sports team. And I didn't have the money, uh, but I went and found, the Celtics were publicly traded. They were on the New York Stock Exchange. So I looked up the numbers. I saw they were cash positive, which I couldn't really believe. I didn't think that existed in pro sports, and especially in 2002. Um, and I thought, well, if there's this cash flow how, could, how much could I borrow against that and, and pay the interest and have left over to invest in the team and make them better because it was half full? The arena was half full, half empty. Wow. 11, actually, about 11,000 people in there in, in, in the garden, in the, old, uh, the new garden. 
out of 18.6. And so just empty seats everywhere. And um, I'm thinking, how do I, it, this wasn't about making money. I, I wasn't made of money, still not. That's not the point uh, for me in this case. The point was for love, for passion, for, and so I looked at the numbers of the Celtics for 10 minutes. I'm like, I think I could support a price of like 360 if I can raise 180 or 200 of equity around Boston and borrow 180, I could support 360. And then I went and found the, the guy in New York, a very nice guy, made an appointment on East 63rd Street. You have to go to East 63rd Street to find the owner of the Celtics. And it had been actually owned out of town since 1963. For 40 years, 39 years, the Celtics had been owned elsewhere by 10 or 12 different owners. And uh, I just, he said, what are you doing here? And I said, I'd like to buy the Celtics. And he said, they're not for sale. And I said, well, is there a crazy number? And this is the turning point in my whole life. He said, there's a crazy number, probably, I guess, uh, 360. It was the, absolutely the top of the range that I had sort of calculated. And so this is my negotiating style. Um, at this case, I said, okay, if I give you 360 in three months, will you sell me the Celtics? And he's like, uh, I guess so. And we shook hands and I went home and mortgaged my house and wired him a non-refundable deposit. This is back in the days when you could mortgage your house to buy an NBA team. And um, <laughs> it wasn't that great a house either. Um, uh, I also mortgaged my vacation house, uh, which is a little better. That's the one Obama has now on the vineyard. But that also had a mortgage on it now, and I wired that money down, and uh, I went out and I had to find 22 great partners around Boston. And the pitch to them was not, we're gonna make money. It was, I don't think we're gonna go broke, but we're gonna be paid in enjoyment, we're gonna have the time of our lives. So that's maybe a whole nother topic, but the whole currency of the Celtics from the beginning in the DNA was uh, Celtic pride, not IRR. I promise, it's just the truth. It's actually interesting. I hadn't really thought about this until you said it, but in 2003, 2004, and I was you know, with, with the Patriots and with the Crafts, and the, they were having a lot of success and were sold out. And we were talking about starting to collect customer data. It was the early days. And the actual like, example of you know, why it made sense when I was talking with Jonathan was very specifically, Look at the Celtics. They're like this amazing history, and they don't know their customer. I mean, the, it was again very early days. Like Facebook didn't exist, and that. And look at them. They're struggling because they don't know their fans. Let's yeah. you know do it. So I, I mean, and you had already had. I walked in there, and it was file folders, no computers whatsoever. File folders of season ticket holders, and with and a lot of sticky notes that say these are free because this cop didn't give Red Auerbach a, a speeding ticket. Like, I mean, it, it goes back 30 years and, and, and it's a big mess and there are handfuls of tickets lying around and, no, and we sold tickets in August. And by definition, that's Red Sox time around Boston yeah. or it's the Cape and the Vineyard and Nantucket time or New Hampshire for a lot of people, but it's definitely not basketball season in, in August. And so we started, the first thing I did is we said we're gonna sell our season ticket renewals in February and we're gonna offer free playoff tickets to people who renew. Well, the first thing I did is I wrote a personal thank you letter to every season ticket holder, which wasn't that hard, there weren't that many. But um, <laughs> they had never been thanked really that way. There are so many things, but um, we don't do things perfectly now, but we did have to change a bunch of stuff. I mean, but what, but what resonates from what both of you just said was, you know, first, you both talked about the teams that you were part of, 
and that's, that's it. But also that you had a belief that there was something there and you wanted to go after it. So thank you for that. So I'm gonna talk now a little bit about like the building and extending. Uh, Jason, you alluded to, a little, to this a little bit, but you know, as, as you know, I've called you um, in the course of the growth of Kager for advice and counsel, and I think one of your best skills is your forward thinking about partnerships. And in fact, in, in 2013, you became the first Daily Fantasy uh, company to sign a league partnership with Major League Baseball. You obviously went public via SPAC in 2019. How else did you think about differenti differentiating DraftKings early in your evolution? Well, I think even though a lot of what got uh, more attention were deals and fundraising, and those were all important, um, I think looking at it now, probably the most important thing we did was from day one put a really heavy emphasis on product. That was really the core of everything that we thought best product wins. And I think that's continued on into the other you know, things like online sports betting that we've launched. That me meant we had to build a great technology team, great engineering team. Um, so that was also a really important part of the investment. And then lastly, analytics. Um, that was my background. I had started my career as an analyst. So did my two co-founders, both of them. Actually, Paul technically tried to be an engineer for about a year, but he quickly figured out he wasn't good enough. Um, so even though he coded the original DraftKings website and we gave him a hard time, the whole thing had to be rebuilt about a year later. Um, but he got it off the ground, so that was good. And now he oversees our whole product engineering team. But um, we all came from an analytics background, too. So that was also core. Like, it was like, all right, this, you know, it's a very complicated business. But if you take a step back, it's actually, you know, product, technology, analytics. That all powers, you know, decision making and also obviously marketing as well. Um, and that was, like, very obvious, I think, early on to us that those are the places. And there was really no debate about it. I mean, there were a lot of debates along the way. But as far as like what's the core you know, skill set that needs to be built to win in this space, it was very obvious to us. Yeah, so again, DraftKings is 10, 10 years old? Uh, just turned uh, just, almost 11, yeah. But, so I, but I think in your second year, you gave a presentation, a competitive advantage talk here at Sloan as you yeah. guys were starting to. So, I mean, you've come a long way. I, I, we had to beg to get on stage, but it you, worked. You didn't have to beg. You're like, who is this guy? I can't believe, all right, fine, Jonathan's asking, I guess I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think in terms of differentiation, Wick, I mean, obviously we already mentioned that you were an early adopter of um, analytics on the basketball side. You know, why did you gravitate towards this approach? Was there something that you were seeing when you were at Highland Capital that was like, hey, this is something that's gonna, you know, make it? No, I had to learn it, and I learned it from Daryl. Uh, I hesitate to admit, but it's true. Uh, learned it from Daryl, and uh, from watching Danny Ainge interact with Daryl, um, which was always funny. It's like a sitcom <laughs> or something. It's like, you know, the way they, uh, you know, and then our coach, you know, with Doc, you know, the whole thing, it, um, just because Doc and Danny and I, I think, are people that are a little more like the old school, like the baseball scouts in Moneyball. And, and Daryl's like, no, 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 it, the game's very simple. It's baskets and free throws and shooting percentage. And I'm like, Daryl, you're basically saying it's the score. I got it. <laughs> Those are the scoring plays, but I mean, you know. Uh, but we, we had healthy debates, but I came along on the journey and I see the point. And so now we have, but I, I just kind of vetoed a trade the other day on the trading deadline because, you know, the numbers added up 3.7 was going out and 3.9 was coming back in our proprietary rating system of 
you know, we, we thought we were getting a point two edge, except it was for a future season. And I'm like, I just told everybody it's this season. So that's not analytical. It's me saying it's this season. I don't know what's going to happen this summer with our roster or anything else. I know we have a chance this year. So everything's coming. Future 3.9 has no value to me. And so I make that call. That's not analytical. How absolute is that? If it were a bigger gap, would you have maybe made a different decision? I'm, I've been in 20 years. I have only one ring, better than none, but I want another one. So All right. So it, that's going the, for it. That's that. Well, Daryl will often say that the brain is the you know, best analytic tool. And uh, so I think like the, the decisioning, earlier there was a panel on the impact of Moneyball 20, 20 years. And one of the questions was, like, can you quantify team? And at this point in time, the answer is no. Bill James actually said you, can have, you need to have cameras in all of the different rooms <laughs> to watch people. But I think, you know, again, both of you. <laughs> both it's dystopian, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. But I, again, kind of the first commentary that both of you made was about, like, team. Like, you both talked about the team. And so, I mean, I'm, I'm also a art and science of the qualitative and quantitative part. And the, that team, so I, I would trust your, your gut on team uh, on decisioning. So we'll see how, how the season well, goes. Thanks. Well, uh, based on last night, we should have probably made the trade. <laughs> <laughs> At least I showed up. <laughs> I was going to hide under the covers all day. <laughs> so, um, OK, so each of you then uh, extended various elements after you got into sports and or, um, into new areas. And how did you think about the adjacency and the best way to scale? So, you know, WIC, it, you, you, you created Causeway. So, we'll, like, how did you think about that? And then Jason will come to you with gambling. So I, I did organize my group around uh, the Celtics around the principle of we're going to have the time of our lives. On and off the court, we get to do these amazing things with this thing that's much bigger than we are. So, and I think we're going to not go broke. We may not appreciate, but that's not the point. It's the last Boston team that's going to sell in our lifetimes. So that was for love. Yeah. Having said that, being in there three, four, five years, and then having the good luck of having some good teams then, um, but I also saw the digitization, <clears throat> the digital expand, expansion of our media rights, of our connection with fans. And I, I felt like there's so many legacy businesses in sports um, that are, I just felt like I could see ahead a little bit, the Wall Street Journal a little bit ahead, which is not always my, you know, I, 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 but in this case, it's like, all right, I got to put more, I actually put money to work as a job to invest in the, the knowledge or the, the belief that, that media rights were going to go digital and go global and sports was going to change. The technology and sports intersection was going to be a great place to invest. So I did Causeway with two great partners. We've been investing together since the 90s. It's been 30-year run, great people, and um, uh, and we we just put money behind the profit. So we have companies like SeatGeek and Quint Events and Flow Sports and Zwift, yeah. uh, and these are really exciting companies. So in terms of those investments, um, maybe just what are, what are the some of the key feature, features that you look for beyond digitization um, as yep. you're thinking about growth? When we invest, um, and there's no correct way to do it, um, it's been going well for us, but there are many people that do great doing it other ways. But we start with the CEO, and we just try to really have that interpersonal. So again, maybe it isn't analytics. I mean, I'm, I'm not. No I'm wonder you be, didn't invest in me. Ever. Yeah, no, we. I, I've <laughs> invest would I would invest in you anytime. I, I think that was a, you know, public. I think it was a pipe, and we've never done pipes. Yeah. But that, that was uh, that's the escape valve in that one. But um, <laughs> should have invested in you. 
but but CEO first and foremost, you know, first and foremost, and then figure out if that person has a team and a plan. And we like to see you know five to ten to fifteen million of revenue, so it's already off the ground. In which case, we can try to use our network in sports because. Mark Juan, one of my partners, is also an owner, not only of the Celtics, but of the Niners, a limited partner. And we have great partnerships with NFL and basketball and baseball owners uh, as LPs of our fund. So we, we have those connections. We like to apply those not to raw startups, but to people that are already moving down the track. So um, similar question for you on the adjacency and the best way to scale. I mean, you yeah. kind of said earlier, it's a no-brainer to go into you know, gambling. Like. Um, I mean, you know, it's interesting to hear Wick talk about it because I look at the businesses he started and they don't always feel like adjacencies, like tequila, sitcoms. Um, <laughs> but it, it resonated what he was saying, that it came from the opportunities created and the networking and all that that originated with his whole group he put together and the, the notion of owning the Celtics. I think for us, it was much more, you know, we had a central... Um, sort of theme to the business, which is we had a platform, we had customers, you know, digital platform with customers, we had wallets, we had people who had their payment methods linked, and we had a certain type of brand and engagement. Um, and so, you know, sports betting and then other forms of online gaming were just a very obvious adjacency. I think as we've started to try other things, it's been a little trickier, and some of them I think are going well, but haven't been as obvious and has, as, um, you know, easy to get off the ground. But the kind of you know sports betting, eye gaming stuff. It was, it was very obvious. I think to anyone, um, like I didn't have to go in and pitch investors. They knew what I was talking about because, like, of course you're going to go into sports betting now that sports betting is legal. So, um, I think for a lot of it, it was just execution, really. And um, you know, on the scaling side, it's all about the people. I mean, people are what give you scale. Um, if you have people that can run things and, and can either with limited or, or sometimes very you know, close to no oversight um, be able to manage things in, in a way that is effective and collaborate with other members of your team, um, that's how you get scale. Our most scarce thing is our time. Yeah. Um, and you know, being able to get more things done um, with the same amount of time because we can't create more time in the day really means you have to have other people that are thinking about things and doing things that you don't have to put that same mental energy and effort into all day. Is there a particular <laughs> hire that you're like, th this was the one that really gave us leverage? I mean, it could be at any point. I mean, I can't say it's one. There are a lot of people I could name. Um, starts to my co-founders, but there's easily like a dozen or more others that are just critical people, many of which have been with us for you know eight, nine, ten years. The other really interesting thing is, um, and it's 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 really I think impossible to replicate. And so we've worked so hard to try to preserve that initial group, people who've been part of the build process, who were there when it was smaller, gone through all the ups and downs. It's almost like a founder mentality. It's their baby too. They feel the same way that the founders do in many ways, and you can't replicate that. No matter what you pay somebody, or no matter what their wiring is coming in. Um, and I hear that probably when he's talking about his initial group, like that mentality and the experiences that they went through in the beginning, you just can't replicate that if you bring in some other owner later, I would think. I, I, so I was like raising my yes. hand because I, I yes, would love right. to hear, I think we probably all would love to hear what you can share, but it sounds like well, we had this, I've always loved fantasy and amazing co-founders and they had this great idea we all generated, and, but you had legal challenges, you had like criminal uh, potential 
you know, involvement or, or yeah. whatever, like, you know, a civil at least, if not worse. And you got through that with resolve and fortitude and probably being worried uh, along the way. <laughs> but but it, it feels a little seamless to roll, and you weren't glossing over it, you just didn't mention, but people probably like to know how bad it really, I feel terrible when we lose a game. This has got to be like times a thousand facing, you know, like attorneys general across the country. You know, it's similar to kind of where I was describing sports betting earlier. There was this whole period of time and it was really almost from the beginning all the way through until about two years ago where I felt like our back is against the wall and just like any, you know, if you're in the ring, your back's against the wall, there's only one way to go. Um, and doesn't mean you're gonna be successful doing it, but you don't have a lot of options. And um, the, the ability to get over that mental hurdle of, oh man, this is terrible, what's gonna, and just say like, look, if I'm gonna give us any chance to get to that next step, to survive, to advance, um, I gotta do this, and we gotta do this. And I think that um, there was like a, a remarkable simplicity to it, and where I feel like, um, you know, if there's any credit to be given to the team, it, it's the fact that we were able to just focus on those things and compartmentalize, and the fact that so many other people were able to be shielded from it and could continue to build the business. That was actually something um, Jonathan Kraft said to me. I called him up when we were at like the absolute darkest moment. Um, the first thing he said to him is, I said, what do you think the chances of survival are? And he goes, 50-50, and I knew he was telling me 50-50 is probably like 5% in his mind. Um, he's not gonna tell me that. Uh, and then I said, oh, you got any advice for me? And everybody, you know, I had a thousand lawyers coming at me at the time, you know, had advice on do this, you know, legally, politically, whatever. Um, and he said, make sure like you, and if you need to, a small group of your people are focusing on this stuff, and then you've carved out as many of, much of the rest of your leadership to just focus on product and on operations and on advancing the business because your competitors are going through, really our competitor at the time, are going through the same thing. And that actually creates an opportunity for you. Sure, you have to get out to the other side, but that's either gonna happen or not. Mm -hmm. um, what you need to do is make sure if you get to the other side that the rest of your team has been able to advance enough so you're actually ahead of the game when that happens. And you do that by really you know, compartmentalizing by making sure that you have a small group that's focused on this and the other people are focused on building products and so on and so forth. So that was like a really game-changing moment for me where like it's sort of like maybe intuitively I knew what we had to do, but then I knew like, okay, not only do I have to do this, but I have to do this and maybe I have like, I had a few other people with me, but like I have to kind of shield everybody else from this and I have to absorb all of that stress and I actually have to make it seem like it's probably better than it is because that'll distract, if I don't, other people from being Some able to focus less, on things. Leadership lessons in here that I'm... It was a little scary though to not just go through it but also to feel like, hey, all these people around me don't actually know how bad it really is. And I'm sitting here and like, you know, in our little bubble and like a few of us knew. Um, but everybody else is like, I mean, they read the headlines, stuff like that. but. They don't really know how bad it really is. Um, so that was a little scary too, but I'm sure you've been through those moments, maybe not in literally the same thing, but I'm sure you've been through many moments where you felt like- I've never been charged pass. criminally with anything, so. I haven't either. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> well, I mean, I think that's a great example of like weathering a very challenging time. I'm also just interested generally, like is there an example of a misstep that you've taken over the past 10 years and you know, what, what is the most important lesson that you learned from that? 
Oh, no, go ahead, please. All right, you give me the hard ones. Uh, why don't you take this one? <laughs> okay. Uh, well, I was just with Kendrick Perkins the other uh, day at his book signing, and he's one of my most beloved friends. I just, you know, bonded for life, love Perk, and uh, he wrote a really amazing book, The Education of Kendrick Perkins. But I said in front of a bunch of people that one of the biggest mistakes was trading him, agreeing to trade him. That seems very minor. You're looking for bigger things like that. But it, it really actually hurt the team, I think, uh, hurt me personally. Um, he did great out in Oklahoma. He was fine with it. But it was, uh, he says in his book, he sat there and like was sobbing with Kevin Garnett when it happened, or with Al Jefferson when it happened, uh, or somebody. And uh, it was just, it was, uh, it was, uh, that's the first example that came to mind. I've made no doubt, many missteps, but I, uh, and I know I have, but. Um, what did you change in your mind as a result of that? Once you're like, oh, that. I, I probably got a little more uh, rigid about saying, no, we're not gonna you know, trade for two years from now. Including this most recent one, yeah, the trade deadline. Probably a little, and that's not necessarily to the good. To close my ears as opposed to keeping them open is not a good thing, so I'm just sort of confessing it. I guess, I guess we'll find out in a few months. Yeah, we'll find yeah. out, we found out. Um, Jason, you want to come back to this one? Or? Um, I mean, my biggest misstep was I should have bought those Celtics tickets a few years ago when they were a little cheaper. <laughs> um, no, I think uh, really... For the record, we price Celtics tickets at like 15% below the street price <laughs> on SeatGeek or Ticketmaster, so we don't want people to feel like they can't actually be okay if they don't want to attend all the games. That is true. And <laughs> well, your point is well taken. There, yeah, it was good. It was definitely, uh, you know, mistiming on my part. But um, I mean, there's so many. That's it's almost hard to say. Like, I mean, I could think of things in the last week, the last day, that are missteps. Um, I think a good recent example is we totally screwed up how we presented our quarter in November, and we learned from it and fixed it in February, and had completely opposite result. Um, and it's not to say when I say presented our quarter, like we don't actually manage the business saying, oh my God, quarter to quarter the way, like I think it's a dangerous trap to fall in as a public company. Of course you have to make sure that you're managing it though. And um, part of that means whatever you're going out on your earnings day with, um, regardless of like whether you made a single decision and hopefully you didn't really um, with that quarterly earnings in mind, you still have the material you have and it's your best job, you gotta do the best job you can to present it and explain it to the street. Um, and I think really, um, it was interesting, we were just ta I was talking about this with my CFO the other day. Um, you know, literally the same investors in a bull market a year and a half ago wanted to hear this and now the same people want to hear a completely different thing. Mm -hmm. And as obvious as it may seem looking outside, like that's a little bit of a mental shift when you're like I'm talking to these same people and like suddenly everything I was telling them that they were so excited about before, they're like I hate that, I want to hear the opposite. Um, and so, you know, I was like, we were, we were looking at like what have other CEOs, other tech companies done? And I looked at the pivot, Zuckerberg with Facebook was able, like they got killed. I mean, they had days they were trading off 20 plus percent um, and then all of a sudden changed his message from metaverse to efficiency and the market loved it. And it occurred to me like, he's actually never been through a bear market either. We've been on such a long bull run that Facebook, who'd been public for like 10 years or something at that point, um, had never actually been through a bear market. So it was a shift for everybody. The last real bear market, I was 27 years old when it happened. So. And I certainly wasn't thinking about this kind of stuff. I was you know, a few years out of college working you know, in a, a mid-level corporate job. So 
Um, it's just kind of interesting, but the most important thing, whatever misstep you make, is to learn. Um, otherwise, it's a waste. If you make a mistake, you better learn from it. Do, are there some shifts that you feel like you've made to your lead? I mean, I'm sh I know there's shifts that you've made to your leadership style over the course of uh, you know the past 11 years, but also like during this kind of situation that's happening in the market right now. Not really. I mean, I think that because we'd been through difficult times before, um, as Wick so eloquently detailed, uh, it was very, um, like a lot of companies when they first face scrutiny is when they're a public company for the first time. And we've been through it. Um, we've been beaten up. So I used to joke with people, be like, this is easy. I mean, this is like, you know, this is the most comfortable I've ever felt um, since starting the business. <laughs> And I mean, meaning I eventually felt more uncomfortable when the market was roaring and I was just like, oh man, something bad's gonna happen. I'm just so used to like nothing goes well for too long. Um, but I think that's when the company's done its best. So we really just recalled everything we've been through and said like, hey, we've like on way worse circumstances, risen to the challenge, shown that we can absolutely, you know, defy the odds. And like nothing has felt more gratifying that when people are doubting you to come back and just show them they were all wrong. I get. I have like a sick brain. I get more pleasure out of that than like celebrating success. I love proving people wrong. Um, it just, for whatever reason. Um, That's why I asked about it because I, 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 I wanted you. I wanted people to hear how strong you are. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. yeah you successfully got me doing the talking. I like it, Wick. Why don't we hear about how Leverage, Wick I like went leverage. from uh, venture capital to Celtics team to tequila to now a Hollywood sitcom star? I mean, I, I do actually, you talked about your digitization. That's, that's a true renaissance. Yeah, no, di di digitization of sports. And then at some point you're like, okay, now I'm gonna start a tequila company with a bunch of other owners yeah. and I'm gonna write a sitcom. Like, yeah. what, what, like. <laughs> what's what the matter with The you? natural career path of most of us. <laughs> uh, no, not well, what's the matter I'm just with having, you. I'm just trying to have fun. I'm trying yeah. to enjoy myself. But yeah, the sitcom came out of my, my wife and her ex had a, this very amicable divorce, uh, and so so much so that they share a nest on the Upper East Side, and the kids stay put in their bedrooms. And mom has a little place over here, and dad has a little place over here. And people switch in and out, wow. and it's very fun. It's called nesting, and it's it's a popular thing. If you can work it out after a divorce, it's, it seems to be really good for the kids. That's all well and good until the guy who grew up in Needham and went to BC, and is the biggest Boston sports fan on the planet, and one day came home with a share of Celtics stock when they were public and said, we're owners of the Celtics. And then as we, I, I said, this is a sitcom because then I showed up and he's like, what's wrong with Jim Dolan or Mark Cuban? Boston sports is all I have. You cannot marry this guy. Um, and so that turned in, I said, this is a sitcom. We're all in one living room. And, and so I wrote a treatment and uh, we sold it to NBC and we're producing 13 episodes right now. It's on right after Night Court this fall at 8.30 on Thursdays. That's awesome. If we get the 13 episodes done. There's a writer's strike coming. Oh. It might be a delay, but we'll see. God, we got something. Did you win them over the same way Red Auerbach got out of that ticket? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> no, listen, I'm learning the Hollywood business, and it's not free tickets. It's like, uh, yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's worse. It's a different sort. It's, it's worse. worse. <laughs> yeah. But uh, just so you know, who's cast as the Celtics owner, we are using... Celtics marks, it's but a different name. As I said to Amelia, my wife, this is imaginary people doing ridiculous stuff. This is not a documentary about us. You know, but the Celtics owner is being played by Donald Faison, who was Turk on Scrubs. If anybody knows Donald yeah. Faison from Scrubs, finally we have some diversity 
at the ownership position of the Celtics, but he's hilarious. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, no, that well, congratulations, and I think actually the consistent the consistent theme is it's something deeply personal to you. So that's connectivity. Okay, just so, like tequila. Yeah, just like tequila. <laughs> so. Um, you know, obviously here in Massachusetts, gambling is going to be legal um, on March 10th. And uh, so I'm actually going to start with Wick on this one. How is sports betting, in your opinion, going to impact the fan experience? And uh, how will it change for those who are not into gambling? And then, well, I'll let you provide. Yeah, we have the expert here, but I, I was thinking about this earlier today, wondering if we talk about that. And yeah. I feel like I have so much invested. I can't gamble on the games, but I feel like I am, um, you know, because I have so much invested in it. It's personal yeah. pride, and it's you know, and, and it's all that. But I think we all feel connected. Those of us who love sports feel connected. You know, you go over to Siena, Italy, and you see the neighborhoods, and the and they each have their horse in the palio, and it's been going on since the 1200s or 1300s. And all the neighboring towns, which is not very well known, have their own palios. One I saw has donkeys running up a hill. I mean, it's not just the one in Siena. There's like 50 of them in that region because the neighborhoods just want to compete with one another. So it's sort of a human nature thing. I don't like to play golf unless it's like for a dollar. I don't care. It doesn't have to be for $100, but it's just more fun. So I, I think it's going to enhance, for a lot of fans who may have the same leanings, it's really going to enhance the viewership, enhance their engagement. They can watch games that they're not, it's not the hometown team. Yeah. I think it's really... I was going to say brilliant. And uh, yeah, it's really going to be positive for the ecosystem as long as we don't have problem gambling and all the things that Jason worries about all day long. Is there, do you have like a specific concept of how you might think about integrating it for the in-game experience? I, there are people doing that. I, yeah. uh, I, I'm going to yield to my friend to my left, but, um, but I, I'm anxious to see how it works. I'm going to try to find some basketball players, you know, but. So Jason, how do, how do you, how do you envision gambling enhancing the fan experience? I mean, Wick really touched on a lot of it, and I'll take what he said and build on it because I think it's the important, um, it was at least uh, for me um, thinking of it in, in the way of not just I'm going to create a new fan, but deepening engagement um, was what resonated. So, you know, Wick talked about you're a Celtics fan. You're a Celtics owner. You are very invested in the Celtics winning. You care. That is the fundamental reason that most of us are following or watching a sport. Now, yeah, we want to see great athletic accomplishments and we want to see you know, cool things we've never seen before and that's all part of it, but we have some rooting interest, some vested interest. And what betting does, or what fantasy does, is it just puts that and you know, expands it well beyond what just that hometown uh, you know, uh, fan of the, the team is experiencing. So all of a sudden, I have a vested interest in every game. If I'm betting on every NBA game tonight, maybe I don't care as much as a fan, but I do care. And I'm experiencing a lot of the same things that made me excited to watch the Celtics in the first place. Same thing if I'm betting on the team I like. All of a sudden, yeah, do I care if they win one of many regular season games? Like, yeah, I care, but this one means even more because I got a few dollars riding on it. Um, and so it just takes whatever you were naturally as a fan inclined to enjoy about the sport and it gives you more of a rooting interest or um, a more diverse set of rooting interests in other games. Uh, and I've talked to people that's happened across sports. Adam Schefter 
um, loves to tell me that he was not super into the NBA until he started playing the $3 fantasy NBA games on DraftKings. And he only really got into them because he's playing the football games and you know, on the off days when it was not Sunday, Monday, Thursday. Or, um, you know, he's like, all right, I'm, you know, I'll try a few of these. And now he loves it. Um, and that got him, but he was already obviously naturally inclined to those things. He wanted to you know, care about the game. He wanted to research it. He wanted to follow it. Um, so I think it really takes, you know, it's not going to invent new sports fans per se, um, but it will take sports fans that, that are casual and turn them into mega fans. It'll take mega fans of a particular team and turn them into knowledgeable about every player, every team in the league. Um, and I think it creates this unbelievably virtuous, you know, flywheel type effect with the content um, that does create these amazing opportunities to partner together. Um, even in strange ways, like we've done stuff with Wix Tequila Company, and that you know we've given away custom bottles for our VIPs, and so they love it. So um, there's just this amazing relationship, I think, between people who uh, you know are, are betting and are playing fantasy, um, and the content itself that just keeps growing. The better we do our job, and what I love about that is it gives people like Wick and the leagues a vested interest in seeing us do it the right way, but seeing us be successful because they know it's engaging their fans. And I really think that's the core of what they care about. It's you know obviously there's money making opportunities too, but every time I talk to anyone at the NBA or I talk to Wick, I hear you know or any of the leagues for that matter, it's all about fan engagement. So maybe you can just say on March 10th or you know, soon thereafter, what will the fan experience be like that in terms of interacting and engaging? And then how is it going to evolve in your mind over the next couple of years, the actual experience of gambling during the game? I'm, I'm, I think you have a vision, so it would be helpful. Yeah, I mean, I think to start, you know, <clears throat> um, it's really, there, there, the, you know, March 10th, there's an existing market that is already here now. Uh, March 10th is not the first day that most people who are going to bet on March 10th will bet. Um, most people who are going to bet on March 10th have probably been betting either illegally or in Vegas or um, somewhere else for, for a while. So a lot of it is about, in the very beginning phases, how do we take some of the potential downsides that exist in the illegal market, like no protections for responsible gaming, no protections for making sure people can actually get their money off the system and on the system, um, making sure that if there's any integrity issues that they're swiftly reported to the appropriate folks, all that sort of stuff. Um, making sure that we're, we're, we're trying to you know, take as much in the illegal market where that doesn't exist and bring as much of that volume here in, in the legal market. Um, and that's really a lot of how we're thinking about the first phase. Doesn't mean there won't be innovation, but that is a core focus, is there's a huge already built up audience of people that are doing this in, a, in an illegal market. Let's bring them over to the legal market and to do that, we have to make sure that those benefits are really well executed. If it's a pain to get your money on and off the system, and believe me, all the different ways that between regulations and payment processors, they try to make it difficult, which, by the way, we always get blamed for. Um, I love how many people are like, why do you keep logging me out of the Sportsbook app every 15 minutes? Like, regulatory requirement, but nobody knows that. They think it's just us with buggy technology or doing something we shouldn't be doing. Um, but uh, you know, our job, I think, is to say, okay, like we have to go up against a lot of these offshore companies that don't have to comply with those things, how do we still make sure it's a better experience? Because we do have some advantages. Banks are willing to work with us because we're not offshore and operating illegally, things like that. So that's a lot of the you know, initial um, you know, thing. And then I think as far as where it goes, I'm really not big on predicting this long-term vision. 
Um, I really think that there's so many things, especially with technology where it is now, there are so many things that are going to happen over the coming years that we don't even know about that are gonna bring new ideas that I'm not like, here's where we're gonna be in five years. Um, you know, high level, is it going to be more integrated into the sport? I think so. Um, is it gonna be even more interactive than it is today? I think so. Um, how will all that kind of come about? Very hard to say. And I use as an example, when we first started, um, we launched a website. And at the time, I think there had been like the iPhone had been around for like maybe three or four years, something like that. Um, so it was around for a decent enough time, but we still had 95 plus percent of our traffic coming on web. Um, and then the next year I noticed, I looked at data, it's 15% coming on mobile. And at that point in time, uh, I said, all right, we're gonna, we're gonna stop focusing solely on the website and we're gonna build a mobile app. Like, what are you doing? It's only 15% of traffic. He's like, yeah, but it was 5% last year. And everybody's like, okay, fine, I guess that makes sense. But like, you know, if it gets to like 20, 30%, we should probably have a separate mobile app. Now it's like 95% the other way. Um, and so I think what we've gotten good at is more being on top of technology and where it's going, recognizing trends, and being able to figure out how those trends apply to our business a little bit faster than some of our competition. Even though we were not the first to launch a website, we were the first with the smartphone app, we were the first with an Apple TV app, all that sort of stuff. Um, and it's because we are looking at data and we're paying attention and recognizing trends. So that's the real thing. It's very hard to you know, replicate um, you know, vision or good guessing. Um, so we tried to build a muscle of how do we just have people that are always, and as I get older, I'm naturally less and less that way. Like I don't naturally come across new technologies as often as I used to 10, 15 years ago. Um, hopefully as my kids get a little older, they'll fill that gap for me, but not yet. Um, so, you know, really building a team and a culture where that's core and like people are like, yeah, like I wanna hear about it. I remember a previous company I was at, um, was like, yeah, we're not gonna do mobile until it's like, you know, 70, 80%, I mean, it's not interesting to us. And like, we actually try to go the opposite and say, I want people pushing me to do it before we're ready. I wanna have that debate where somebody's like, it's 15% and the other person's like, nope, this is happening. And the more we build the culture that way and the more those new ideas get surfaced, um, I think that's really the repeatable thing. Um, being, you know, reliant on any individual or even small group of people to know where things are going, I don't think works long-term. Yeah. So, um, you know, as we're thinking about the future of sports, obviously this is a big part of it. Wick, what do you see as the next big thing in sports? And from a macro trends perspective, what are the tailwinds or headwinds to this? Well, the next big thing, I mean, I think that we are, I think it's gonna be, uh, I was a history major, maybe I'm, it's gonna show that bias. Uh, definitely not an engineer, because he didn't have, didn't have the chops, but <laughs> I think the great teams are gonna continue to you know, be strong because I think the world's gonna, um, I, I, there's room for new sports, there are new sports uh, coming, padel and pickleball and 2020, you know, cricket obviously a huge success and, and, uh, and all of that, so there's, there's room, but I, I just think of these local teams, like the Celtics were probably a 75 mile radius team mm. back in the day, like, you know, not TV, anymore. TV signal, 75 miles, driving into a game, 75 miles, maybe tops. Um, and, and, you know, not selling out in the 60s. They won 11 championships in 13 years through that period. And I, I'm told that many of those games didn't sell out. Wow. You know, so it was just very local. And now it's global, um, like, like the Patriots and so many others. And um, so I guess it's not the next big thing, but it's continuing the trend. I'm like, if you said, would, would 
global appeal of legacy teams double or drop 50%, I'm going to be on the optimistic side. Wick, with I don't know if we can double from here, but I'm just, I, if I had to choose one or the other, I'd say double from here. With that in mind, as it you know, moves away from purely local and now with like the struggles of the RSNs, where yeah. do you think all that's going to go? Yeah, I think the RSNs are a, uh, a great legacy that my father, who was early in cable in 1963, probably helped, I don't think he'd say he helped invent the bundle, but we've certainly benefited as a family from the bundle for 70 years now, or whatever the math is. Um, and uh, it, so, well, let's see, 63, that would be, uh, yeah, 60 years. And, um, uh, but I think it's run, it's like an oil well now, and we're pumping steam down there to try to get the last drops of oil out. But, but it's going digital. It, the bundle is legacy and a la carte or, you know. How are the Celtics approaching that? We have a long-term partnership still with Comcast, with NBC Sports Boston. Um, and it's, that partnership is very strong because the fan support has been very strong. We have great ratings and great fan support around New England. So we're gonna, we've got a number of years to run on that. And I think the New England cable model is pretty good. But I mean, eventually we'll transition, I imagine. You're going to keep pumping the steam in as long Pump as you can. Pump that steam in or <laughs> ask Brian Roberts to do it. Jason, what about you on the next big thing? I mean, I think really in, it, it's, it's going to be technology driven. And the thing that we're seeing is technology is enabling more connections between the fan and the team or the player than ever before. We're also seeing technology is allowing the players to establish their own brands and their own identities independent of needing to attach to some bigger brand or identity as much. So I think those are two real trends that we're seeing that will change things. Um, you know, in particular, I think uh, on the latter side, um, you know, you didn't see, I mean, Jordan, obviously, there, was, there were examples of like these mega brands, but, um, you know, it wasn't as common to see somebody say, hey, I'm like starting my own, you know, shoe, or I'm starting my, like 20, 30 years ago, and now that can be expanded into anything. Um, so, you know, I think what technology has done is, is reduced the, the sort of um, friction um, for somebody who, without having to get involved with a larger company or a larger brand to be able to do some of the things that connect them with fans and build up their followings and build up their brands. And I think you're going to see even more of that occurring and it's going to become very, I mean, it's already in the NBA in particular, a very player-centric league, but I think it becomes even more that way. So, you know, Wick, you're obviously mentioned that you're like going for it for the championship this year. Um, you know, w as you're thinking about championships and the vision for the Celtics, would you care to elaborate a little bit more? I, on, on for, for this year, yeah. what are, like championship means? She wants to know if you're going to win a championship. No, 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 no. no. I meant like your, your definition of winning. Oh, this is my definition of winning. <laughs> <laughs> right there. Um, like another one. Uh, but um, thank you for letting my son take you. a photo uh, with that in the green room. For any Knicks fans in the audience, this is a championship ring. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Next question. <laughs> no, but I think like your definition of um, you got to have fun with your job. Yeah. If you don't have. Like, can I just close on this note? I think we have, you know, in a moment. Uh, but uh, you know, have try to have fun. I've been very, very lucky to be here. Clearly, lucky background, privileged, all the things that you know. Um, I probably should have noted more carefully, but I'm trying to note now. But whatever you're doing, try to. Try to uh, find something that you enjoy that doesn't feel like work. And then I'd also like to say, and you didn't ask, but, you're, uh, but 
No, I do want to hang another banner or two. Mm -hmm. um, it does happen, though, that it's not necessarily basketball. My son is blind, as an example. Campbell, I was the chairman of Mass Ear for 11 years, but I'd like to hang a banner that says, we beat blindness, like there's no more blindness in the world. You know, so we can all hang banners. It's not all, not all about the ring or the ones that are hanging in the garden. So you can each hang a banner in this room with your talents and skills that you have out there in the darkness. But uh, maybe think, take a moment, think of the banner you want to hang in your life. And uh, let me know when the celebration is, and I'll come and try to celebrate with you. I love that. Jason, do you have a, a banner outside of the success of DraftKings? I think we all want to make an impact on the world in some way, and I think Wick, given you know his his child has a passion for blindness, um, there's a lot of areas that we focus on at DraftKings. Um, many of them are things that are personal to us. Some of them are things that are important to our players. Uh, veterans is a big one for us. Diversity is a big one for us. Um, social justice, uh, those sorts of things. Um, I think that you know having a purpose beyond whatever your business's purpose or your, you know, whatever your job's purpose is, is, is something that most people need. Um, and, you know, to be able to do that in a bigger way is, is a blessing. The other thing I would add is, um, we've told us both talk about people that we worked with. Having great people around you is important. And part of that is, um, you know, and it's not just, I think, I'll, I'll compliment with for a second, not just like, something that you act and do, but like actually being humble. Wick is an incredibly humble person. You heard him talk earlier about, hey, analytics maybe at first wasn't my thing, but I knew Daryl, other people, smart people around me were, no, this is something you gotta pay attention to. Um, and you see it in his personality and the way he presents himself, but it's also, I would imagine, in the way that he runs his organization. People are comfortable speaking up, people are comfortable pushing back, um, no pride of authorship. And, I think, again, to get scale, you need to get great people around, you need to get great ideas coming from everywhere. Um, and getting over that like mental hurdle of, you know, hey, I need things to come from me, or I have to give up control, or whatever like thing is holding you back from doing that, I think is an important step for anybody. Um, and some people will come naturally too, right? I don't think, um, you know, Wick has to work that hard at it, but for others, it, it might be a little bit of, uh, you know, a journey to get there. Um, but it really does come down to creating, you know, having great people around you and creating an environment where everyone feels comfortable. Part of it is having fun. Um, and everyone feels like, you know, they're not operating out of fear. Maybe they're a little bit, you know, nervous about their own results, but it's coming from themselves, not from you. Um, and there, there's, there's a, an environment where all sorts of folks, that's why we emphasize diversity so much, feel comfortable sharing ideas, pushing back. Um, we love a good debate at DraftKings, even if it makes it take a little longer, and I do get complaints about that, we don't shut it down, because um, good quality comes from that. And I think that it's important you create an environment where people can, can express their views, even um, if they know that someone else disagrees with them. Just a quick question, how humble can you be if you write a TV show about yourself? <laughs> <laughs> Very aware, very aware. Um, no, I, I, I would agree over the you know, almost 20 years that, that I've uh, known you, Wick, you, you are okay, okay. incredibly Thank humble. You. No, it's just true. Thank you. He doesn't um, even want to be called up. humble, he's the so humble. Time's up. Yeah. No, no. That's right, how humble so we have a couple. We have a couple minutes for questions from the audience, so um, if anything is uh, you know, a little too sticky, I'm sorry, it wasn't me. What, uh, so Wick's already asked me the toughest question. Yeah, really. I, I was trying to give you a compliment by bringing up that <laughs> I horrible, love it. You guys are moderating horrible, each other. Uh, 
in, in time period. Yeah, okay. So this, this first one, uh, Jason, is for, for you. I, th I think it's, yeah. What do you think of the new wave of competitors in sports gambling? What would you do differently if you were starting from scratch today? Um, so two different questions. I'll start with the first one. We, you know, we're in a very competitive industry, and I think, um, you know, it's interesting, daily fantasy, even though it didn't end up being nearly as large as online sports betting will be, it was kind of a similar thing where um, there was a period where it felt like every week there's a new competitor launching, and, um, you know, it was almost like I'd, you had to stop yourself from being dismissive. Um, even if naturally you're like, really, like USA Today is going to launch a daily fantasy sports website? Okay. Um, you're like, nope, I don't, because I thought about it and I'm like, we were one of others in FanDuel, I think, when we ended up passing them in daily fantasy. Um, one of the things we look back on is they didn't take us seriously enough in the beginning. So we really preach like every competitor you have to take seriously. You have to assume every single competitor is here, here to win um, and, you know, have a healthy, uh, you know, so, uh, you know, worry about it. Don't, always, don't, don't ever get complacent. The worst thing you could do is to get complacent. So I think that's something we've been used to for a long time, and um, we're a very competitive culture. Um, we, we make analogies all the time to sports. We're like, you know, um, you're like just about the uh, winning and, 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 and the competition around it. Um, so we welcome competition. We love it. And... Um, you know, just like I said, nothing feels better than proving people wrong. Nothing feels better than beating competition that didn't think that you were good enough to beat them. So um, that's always a big motivator for us. So, Wick, uh, again, on the Moneyball panel earlier, Jackie McMullen said that she thinks Derek White is the key to the Celtics winning a championship th this year. And there was discussion about that. What are, what are your feelings on that? There was an article in 538 about his high... Um, He's you know. unbelievably important to the team, and uh, <clears throat> but my the first person I'd, I'd rather not call out any particular guy, but I would add a person to the list, which is sure. Mal who is Malcolm Brogdon. And I have said, uh, <clears throat> you know, internally that um, if we had Malcolm last year in the finals, we might have won the finals. Would be my gut again, gut. But um, I could probably say that uh, I, I could add. Everybody, or lots of people on the list, I love this roster. They're very connected as a team, so they build off one another. But Derek and Malcolm have such poise and presence um, and organize things and play D when you don't necessarily expect it. You know, Malcolm's like leading the NBA in three-point percentage. Still doesn't crack a smile. Off the court, he smiles all the time, but he's just got this game face. Anyway, I love them both, and uh, they're big pieces of the puzzle. They're not the stars, but they're the glue. All right. That's awesome to hear. Um, from both the perspective of a sports team and a sports gambling company, what is your take on the role digital collectibles, NFTs, will play in future growth for your organizations? I don't honestly know. I'm hoping that we can use um, that the NFT concept to let people you know, remember the games. I think people want to go and see history being made, and they were there. And so anything we can do to sort of say, here's a, a, clip, a video clip from it, here's your experience, here's a unique yeah. you know, memento from the game, I mean, so that the memories become more tangible um, in digital form, uh, that's all good with me. I mean, I, I, think it, I think it, instead of changing things, it just enhances <clears throat> the stuff that we're, as Jason said, with betting, I think it can enhance the connection we already feel.
So we're, we are at time. This was a very fun conversation. Thank you very much. So I have a few takeaways from this that I'll just share back out. So first, uh, you know, the big, for the starting one is the importance of team. You guys both spoke so eloquently about that. The decisions that you've made to go for it were very personal. There are things that you believed in and were connected to, and you had to fight hard for them. Um, you know, I, Jason, I loved your, your perspective on when you were talking about the protections and why uh, had the integrity of gambling, the, the, making, the regulations that are needed in the illegal market. I think sometimes we don't, there can be a negative, uh, you know, way that gambling is viewed. Um, WIC, the global nature of sports, and uh, not that you necessarily think it's going to be the case, but the potential of, higher potential of doubling the value of teams. Yeah. And, then, and then lastly, you know, and I think we should all take, take what Wick said to heart, find your banner and your championship. So thank you, Wick and thank Jason. You, thank, thank you. Appreciate it so Thanks, much. Jeff.